And we're looking at, this is actually our last, until we break for Advent, this is going to be our last uh, installment in the series on Galatians that we've been, we've been looking through. Uh, starting next week, the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to do something a little bit special and that we're going to take some of our favorite Advent hymns and look at the texts that um, underlie those and uh, that give birth to um, some of this language that we love to sing. And so we're going to do a sermon series through some of these hymns that we sing uh, starting next week. It'll be a little bit fun, and then we'll pick up in Galatians in the first of the year. Uh, but this is, uh, this, the passage we're about to look at, this really is, if it's not the heart, it is right close to the heart of what Paul is trying to argue um, toward, to uh, the situation he is writing into, to the churches of Galatia. Um, that he has been preaching about this salvation by grace um, and not salvation by works, uh, the freedom that is provided in Jesus, uh, the wonders of the benefits that, are, that come from him, and the warning um, against um, taking those things in a way that is actually harmful. And we're jumping in in the middle of a section here where he's been talking about the patriarch Abraham. Uh, Abraham was the, the first patriarch when God uh, pulled out and chose a particular people and he made a covenant with him and promises that through him um, and this people and this offspring that he would bless all nations, uh, that he would shower them with his benefits and he would use them in his service. So we're jumping in right here in the middle of this section. And I want to say too, there's just, this is a, this is a difficult passage of scripture. Uh, there are going to be several sentences in here, if you're the, the detail curious type, that are going to be confusing. Uh, there are ideas that might be confusing in here, and I'm going to do the best I can uh, to articulate these. Some of these details we're just going to have to let pass, um, and that is not from trying to hide that from you, uh, but that is uh, out of love and goodwill towards you, I hope, um, that we don't dive uh, drill too deeply. But we're going to look at this. At a, there, is a, there is an abundance of good news uh, that, we, that is very clear from this passage that we can hold on to and we can, um, we can invest our lives in and we can take out of here with us. So all that being said, let me go before the Lord and pray. Uh, then I'll read the passage. Um, and um, Well, let me do it in reverse order. Let's read the passage first and then I'll pray for us and we'll jump in. This is God's word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to all springs, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, we humbly come before you and ask that you would teach us of the the wonderful good news and the abundance of freedom uh, that you have given us in Jesus. Would you be with my words, help them be true, help them be helpful, uh, but would you, in a way that only you can, send your spirit, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would convict us, that you would lead us to the path um, that provides true life. And so we put what we're about to do in your hands firmly and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the big subject we're going to wrestle with this morning, as you saw when we read this, is the law of God. Uh, we, Paul, we've gotten to this place in this letter where Paul is talking about the gospel, but we have this issue um, that the law of God was actually given by God. Um, it had a purpose. And so it brings up, when we're talking about this message of, of salvation through faith alone, what is the purpose of God? What is the purpose of the law in the first place? That's going to be one of the big ideas of what we're struggling with here. Uh, but it, one of the things I was wrestling all week is why this is the case. And I'm sure that there are several uh, reasons why a struggle with God's law would come about. Uh, there's probably a number of ways you can slice this pie. But I think it has an awful lot to do with a, a sense of security, um, of security before God and the security in life. Especially that in considering the situation this has been written into. Uh, this is a time in the life of the people of God where it would have felt like it was, they were undergoing a massive spiritual and social change. That for some, somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 years, that this family has been following these traditions, have been doing these things, and then now it's different. That Jesus has come, the promised Messiah, he has risen from the dead, and now some of these things are passing away. And so there is a confusion here, um, perhaps a sense of insecurity about what does all this mean? We're moving out into new territory, and what are the, what are the things that we can really count on, and we can really depend on when things get difficult? And when we enter in the rules, the law of God, then think it, there is a ripe uh, opportunity um, to use a good thing in a way that it was never intended and for it actually to become a harmful thing rather than a good thing. And the thing is that sometimes the thing that feels the most secure to us can be actually the thing that puts us in the most danger. And I'll give you an illustration that I'm going to uh, steal from a songwriter named Alan Levi. Uh, you can look this up on YouTube. Uh, he sang this with uh, another uh, songwriter, David Wilcox. Um, and I'm going to use the metaphor a little bit differently, but it's the same general idea. Uh, Alan was driving on a road uh, to a new gig, and he saw out in the distance a turtle uh, was trying to cross the road. And he is barreling down in it on his truck, and he's watching the turtle to see what the turtle was going to do. And he's singing about the turtle with the death and disaster, can't move no faster blues. And also the low down bad luck, here comes the big truck blues. And he is wondering what is going to happen to this turtle. And what does a turtle do when he is in the situation of most danger? What turtles always do to protect themselves. Shunk. He sinks into the shell. This is what the turtle knows. This is what he knows how to protect himself. This is the place where he feels the most secure, 
is being inside that shell. But the irony here is that that movement of coming down into this shell, that is the wrong application at the wrong time of that shell on the turtle. And what he is actually doing is he is putting himself in far more danger than he is um, finding a path towards safety. And this is why Paul is writing to warn the Galatian people about this, is because the law of God can actually be used that way. The thing that was given for a good purpose, the thing that was a wonderful gift given from God, if used in the wrong application, it is actually putting them in far more of a harmful place than it is giving them safety. How I'm going to go about this is Paul is going to, we're going to unpack the relationship with the law. We're going to ask this question, what is the proper use of the law? And we're going to look at what are some of these ways that the law can actually be used harmfully. Um, so it's going to, you know what a DTR is, right? You know, define the relationship. Uh, that's what Paul's doing here with the law. He's going to define the relationship. Um, we're going to look at three points. He's going to define the relationship of the law with, let me get on the right page here, uh, the law to God's blessing and the law to God's people and the law to God's mission. So he's going to uh, hopefully help clarify and set us straight what is the proper relationship of the law in these things so that we can find um, the most position, the best position of safety. Uh, so let's jump into the first place, this first paragraph in these verses that Paul is, is, is beginning his argument by defining the relationship of God's law to God's blessing. Um, and what he's going to argue is that the way the Galatian church is using God's law is a formula that is exactly backwards. Um, that they're putting the wrong thing first and then the wrong thing second. And that in that formula, that it actually undermines the whole thing and it doesn't offer any protection. Um, according to that way of thinking about it. Uh, let me define a couple things. What do we mean by God's law? Uh, this does get a little bit complicated uh, because there are a lot of aspects to it. There are moral aspects. Uh, when Paul is talking about it, he's referring to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it has moral aspects. The Ten Commandments are there. Um, it has applications of them that point to um, you know, all aspects of uh, moral behavior and social behavior and those kinds of things. It also has ceremonial aspects to it. Like one of the, the big debate behind this letter is about circumcision. And it's about uh, food days and festivals and these things that Paul is actually arguing is going to pass away. Um, I'm going to get to a distinction of those two things in when we get to point two. But I just want to put before you what we're talking about in God's law is these are all of the commandments that God had given to his people that they were to live by um, and that he expected them to keep. Um, that there were consequences for not keeping them. And I want to define what blessing is as also. Uh, when God is talking about here, there's a lot of words we're going to use. I'm getting this word blessing from Genesis chapter 2. When, when Abraham was first called, that God promised um, that God was going to bless this guy and he was going to bless this people. Uh, here, we also hear the language of inheritance. Um, that this is what is going to be passed down to a people like an inheritance. Uh, we talk about salvation. These are all going to get at, these, at similar things. That with Abraham, it specifically meant a land promise and a people promise, and then this idea of blessing. There were these very tangible things. And as the story unfolded, we see that it's much, much more than that. We're not just talking about the land that was given to Israel or the, or the inheritance of Isaac or the other children. We're talking about a cosmic thing, 
uh, that there is a spiritual blessing to this that deals with the standing before God, with the relationship before God. But there's also a participation in this bigger trajectory of what God is doing in heaven and on earth and how he is moving all things underneath his lordship to shower them with blessing. And so when we are talking about blessing, we are talking about a broad thing and we're talking about spiritual things. But it is far more than that. And this is all of the blessings that God has in, of him, all the blessings of heaven, of this movement that he is bringing them down and giving to his people on the earth. It is much more than just this idea of going to heaven. It's not less than that, but it is much more. Uh, so those things being said, this is what, we just need those in order to understand where we're going here. But Paul is going to make a two-point argument to the Galatians who are essentially, they're taking the goodness of God's law and treating it in a way that it, by the observance of this, this is where security is going to come. And that this change that is happening is really anxious by, and they feel like, wouldn't it be more secure not to just wholesale go with this new thing, but to stick with what we've been doing for 12, uh, 1,500 years and such like that? Why is the new thing so good? In the first place, Paul's going to argue this way. If we're talking about what is the new thing, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. And Paul is reminding the, the, the Galatian people that the good news of Jesus first came to Abraham before the law ever came about. It didn't come with any aspect of, of a works righteousness or a law keeping that is going to get them anywhere. That God picked Abraham out and he made promises to Abraham. And he made several promises to Abraham over the span of those chapters. That he would bless Abraham, that he would make Abraham a blessing, and that Abraham's family would be characterized by blessing through which God is going to bless the whole world. It didn't come from who Abraham was. It didn't come from what kind of person he was. It fully came from the promise of God. And this actually predated the law. So if we're looking at this logically, uh, we're asking this question that where does the burden of of our security lie? Like if we're really struggling with this question, it has to come from God's promise. If it doesn't, if we add this aspect of law keeping to it, that's the foundation of security, it actually undermines the whole thing. It's a contradiction. It'd be like if I gave you a gift for Christmas and then I demanded payment for it, it's not really a gift at that point. Like those are kind of mutually exclusive categories. Um, that is, if it, it, is, it comes by promise or it comes by the keeping of the law. And Paul is arguing firmly that in the very beginning, this has always been about God and his promise. That God to Abraham, he said, as you are struggling with the burden of your security, what I'm going to do is I'm coming to you. I'm making you a promise. If we read a couple chapters further, he ratified that promise. He asked Abraham to divide animals in half and to set them aside, which is a sign of a covenant that if this promise is broken, may this be the outcome. And rather than Abraham walk through those animals, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and God passed through on his own. He said, if this promise fails, the consequence is on me. It is not on you. And of course, when we come to Jesus Christ, the time now that has brought about all this change, this is exactly what Jesus does. 
is he fulfills a promise. He keeps a promise that came from way back in the day. He said that the burden of this covenant, the the success of this promise, the well-being of my people, it comes from me. It does not weigh on them. And God offered up his son Jesus and Jesus in unity with the Father out of love for us. He gave himself up uh, for the sake of us to show that this promise is kept. This covenant has been ratified. It is secure forever and for all time. And this is, this is inviting us into this question. When we, it's the same question for us. When we think about our lives, who holds the burden of your well-being before God and for, and, and for life? Is it on you or is it on God? And our temptation is it's easy to get this when we first come into the family of God and we say, we see our sin and we see the promise given to, that has been given by God of his forgiveness of sins and we entrust our lives to him. But then all these games start to play. We start to look at our lives. We start to look at our anger that comes and goes. We start to pay attention to what we're looking at that we know we shouldn't. And it's like this barometer of where our security is before God, it keeps changing. And what Paul is arguing is that if that is the case, if that is the barometer for your security, that is depending on this later thing that is actually a contradiction of the previous promise. God made a promise for his people, not for the beginning, but through the rest of their lives. We also see this in terms of just our life and our wisdom of going through life. We are going about our lives. We're trying to make decisions of what is the wisest path. Um, you know, we make investments. We think about who we decided to marry. We think about the career we decided uh, to pursue. We think about the house that we just put a whole bunch of money into. Um, and it is easy to think that the burden of my success, that the burden of my well-being in life, it ultimately comes down to these things. Did I make the right decisions? Did I not make the right decisions? Am I forfeiting blessing because I made a mistake? And this is not saying that there are not consequences, and this is not saying that God does not use consequences to get our attention and to teach us and to grow us closer to him and to grow us in wisdom. But the burden of our blessing does not rest on us if we are part of the people of God. It comes because God made a promise to weak and wandering people that he would bless them and he would use them and he would, through them, do this great work that he is about doing of bringing heaven to earth and restoring everything to shalom. There are a myriad of things that we have to think about every week, uh, every day. Who we follow, who we pay attention to, who we believe. How do we determine that with the social change that we are seeing, whether we're the good guys or whether the bad guys? The promise is on God. But this kind of brings us to the crux of this difficult position, that if that's true, and Paul is arguing that's the foundation of all these things um, that we are about, He is saying that if keeping of the law is what you're depending on, it's like a turtle going inside of its shell. But that invites us to ask this question, like, what is the purpose of the law in the first place? I mean, God gave it in the beginning. Does that mean that he gave a bad thing? Does that mean that he gave a good thing and then somehow, like, changed his mind? Like, were the the people of Israel duped in some way by giving something that wasn't uh, all that good in the long run? Um, Like, what's going on here? 
And thankfully, Paul anticipates that question, and he's going to go right at it. Um, in this next section, he's saying, why then the law? Why we have a law in the first place? And what he is going to argue, and what I hopefully want to show you, that rather than something to justify his people, that the giving of the law had everything to do with maturity, not justification. And that's in a couple of ways. When he says that it was added here because of transgressions, and that he used the law to, to bring everything, imprison everything under sin uh, for a time. And so what this does is, like, regardless of who you are or where you came from, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, whether you're a Canaanite or whatever, that the law of God, and one of the things that it does is it brings about this awareness and clarity about sin. That sin is sin. That just going our merry way is not a neutral thing. That there is a God that exists. There is a way that he designed the earth. There is a purity and holy and goodness that really does exist. And no matter who we are, where we come from, there is not a human being in the world who lives up to that standard. There is not a human being in the world who does not in some way um, wreak havoc um, with God's standard. And so in one place, one of the functions of the law is that it brings um, this kind of, it helps us to see with God's eyes. It brings maturity about what is holiness and what is good and what is not. And because of that, then everyone stands uh, condemned before him. We fall short. But then he goes on and he, there's this other wrinkle of circumcision um, in that just as the law of God, it points, it points beyond itself to God. It points to his bigger and better standard. For the Jewish people, then Paul's going to argue that the law of function is a guardian. And what this would have been like if you were in that time, it was like a slave um, who was, which now it would be like a babysitter who, when there were children, you would take them where they needed to go, keep them from running, wreak, you know, wreaking havoc um, in the household, um, you know, protect them from harm and that kind of thing. And there's a sense for Israel that as Israel was marked out, as that through this people, God would be known. Through this people, they would bear witness of the existence of God, they would bear witness to the character of God through his law, that God marked them out with these other, with these other aspects of the law. So he would be clearly seen that this is the people of God and this is who God is. But this was all preparation for a time. This also pointed beyond itself. This was preparation for a time when Jesus would come and he would be clearly seen and he would be clearly known It was ushering in this time of Jesus. And there's a sense in which the maturity, what Paul wanted the the people of Jewish descent to understand, is to grow in maturity. And that these all had a function not to justify, but to point beyond themselves to Jesus. And what was Jesus about? What is he doing? He wanted to grow them up and to give them a much bigger vision. The kind of maturity, the bigger vision of who God is, who his character actually is. But also who, what he is about. What is the ultimate purpose of this people in the world? And so the law brings us to maturity. And I think for us, you know, we're not struggling with the same issue of circumcision like, like we are in that day. But there is this aspect uh, when we treat the law in a way that this somehow justifies ourselves. Sometimes we miss the point. Sometimes then that way, then the law becomes about us. It is a means through which we look at us. We say, how am I right? How am I not right? 
and we're always playing these games. When the law actually has always had a better purpose, pointing beyond and saying, look, look, look at God. Beyond yourself. And it is in the looking at God, rather than us, that maturity actually comes. Part of that is the older and more mature we get, the more we understand um, who God is and how big his character is, it will be more and more convicting. That is not a bad thing. That is the law working in the way that it should in many ways. It is pointing us back to Jesus. It is pointing at him as the fulfillment of that promise given to us. But it's also pointing beyond itself at why God gave us this law in the first place. It is showing us his character. It is showing that God is not just about not technically murdering people. But he is the author and the giver of life. He is the author and the giver of justice. He is the author and giver of peace and compassion. He is the shepherd who looks out for lost sheep and pursues them out of mercy. This is what the law does for us. It doesn't justify, but it does point us towards maturity. And I want to gear, I'm gangling towards this last point um, that I'm going to close us with, and I'm going to give you an illustration. One of my favorite shows of all time is Arrested Development. Um, and everything I say, then watch it at your own discretion, but there's a character in Arrested Development named Buster. And Buster um, is an incompetent child who lives with his mother and who can't get out of the home. And there's a lot of comedy surrounding that, but he is the epitome of the child who never grew up, who never matured, who never was actually able to live in the way that he was designed. And this is a metaphor. When Paul's, this, this idea of Paul is actually giving us in our head when he's talking about the, the idea of a guardian, that there is a consequence. Like if we stop and say that God's um, his salvation for us, his promise and his good works is just about we are justified and then we go to heaven and then we're at the end of the story. Nothing more, no application to life. It is going to be equivalent to living under the goodness of a household and never growing up and never moving out. There's actually a bigger vision that God has for us. Maturity is geared towards a different end. And what is that end? What is this atrophy that is going to happen in, in us as we just stop at that point? We get these wonderful verses at the end where he says, For we are all sons of God through faith, For as many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is describing, he's inscribing unlimited access, no matter who we are, to the goodness of God. But these are also very social categories. These are categories that exist in life. These are actual divisions that exist within people. And if we read on, this is kind of what Paul is talking about. He's going to talk about the elementary principles of the world. That life lives by competition. The strongest survive. Um, the most competent uh, go through while the weak falter. Um, these just basic ways of going about life. And he is saying that in Christ, it is fundamentally different. That just as the law condemns all, 
universally, no matter who we are, who we come from, that the good news of Jesus has also come to everybody, no matter where they come from. But even this is a part of a trajectory and where Jesus becomes the King and the Lord of all things. Every aspect of creation and everything find its healing and its true purpose in Jesus. And what he's trying to get us to understand is that as we receive these blessings, we are also brought up into that story. He doesn't say specifically that some of these, he hits at class, he hits at gender, and he hits at race in here. He doesn't say that these actually go away immediately. But he is arguing that once we get what faith in Jesus actually means, they become impossible to hold on to. And I want to talk about race for just a second. It is one of those rife things where it is easy to, we can give the right slogan, uh, we can post the right things, and it become a self-justifying thing. That this is you know, one of those ways that we can prove, we try to prove we are the good guys and not the bad guys by these things. But that being said, if our attitude is that the way that everything is right now is the way that God intended and will intend uh, in the end, we've missed the point. When we get the unity of how we come to Jesus, what we start to see is rather than a political issue, we start to see sisters and brothers and other people who we are united to, who are our people, who we are, beyond, we are bonded to them. And that is sad. This is not the vision. This is not the way that God intended things to be. This extends to class as well. Paul is not giving a political solution of how to do economics or whatever. But he is saying that when we get the gospel, we see other people. We see sisters and brothers who are also lost and who come to Jesus just like we do. And we see separation between people who are our own family. It is the same with gender. Paul is giving us a much bigger vision to hold on to, and this is good news. And we come to Jesus free. We all come to Jesus broken. We come to Jesus in equal need. We come to Jesus in equal measure of grace. And we are all invited into a much bigger story that gives us something far more to live for, far more hope, far more purpose, and far more dignity than we would find any other way. In fact, the tricky part is, is that when we are dependent on justifying ourselves, we end up defining ourselves according to who we are against, who is the other category. And Paul turns that upside down. He turns us back towards each other in love and humility um, and great vision for unity. I want to leave you with an illustration. This is uh, uh, one of the times I was most proud of my wife. This is another turtle illustration. Um, she was dry in a park in St. Louis and was driving, um, and there was a huge, ugly snapping turtle in the middle of the road. She was with a friend, had little babies in their strollers, and they stopped the car, and they got out, put the babies in strollers, stopped all traffic going to and from in this park. And they were like, you know, leading this turtle out of the road and back out into uh, the pond where it could swim and be free. Um, 
A snap, I want to just think about the picture of a snapping turtle out in the middle of that road, completely helpless, ugly, trying to attack the thing that is trying to save us because it is so bent on using its own faculties to defend itself. This is like, if you watch Ted Lasso, this is a total Roy Kent. It's just, you know. But when it finds its way into the water, it is totally free. All of its things work in the way they were intended to. But the only way there is to let go of that anger and to allow the Savior to pick us up and to give us that kind of freedom. This is the gospel that Jesus is preaching, and this is my prayer for me and for you guys, that as we face ourselves, we face our insecurity this week, that we would see our Savior, we would allow him to do what he has promised to do, and that he would allow us to be free and to be happy. Let me pray for us to that end right now. Father, when you look down at us, you see fully the state of our hearts. You see our divisions. Uh, You see our anger. You see our layers of self-protection that we have built up over time and we have no idea what to do do with. Would you melt our hearts this week by this gospel? Would you draw us to yourself? Would you give us a new purpose and vision and identity that we can have joy, uh, the kind of joy that we crave um, and that you have made us to have? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.